Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Right. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. La Cajo Folle is over. It's time to mount the crucifix. Andy, uh, this is a new series. We're doing a new series, a new set of films. It's kind of a throwback to movies and their remakes, which I'm very excited about. And it's also, uh, we're introducing a new name to the film. We've never done anything related to Francis Weber. Yeah, it's a fun twist to do with our movies and their remakes, especially because Francis Weber, who has been equated to, if I may find it in my notes, the <laughs> Neil Simon of French theater. 
Yes. Uh, he has definitely been uh, named as somebody who is very popular in French comedy and who was involved in a good number of films that have been remade in American, uh, over here in, um, on American soil. And I think that that kind of is an interesting thing to see how this is a person who stood out to be kind of, uh, I don't know, somebody that draws enough attention that people want to keep remaking his work. So why not do a movies in the remake series surrounding him? That's right. I'm I'm very excited to see. And, and, you know, I don't think I'd ever made the connection of Francis Faber as the Neil Simon. And I've seen this film and, and some of the other films that we're talking about in this series. And um, and you can now that I now that I associate that with Weber, I can totally see it, especially sure. after watching La Caja Full again. This was your first time with the film. Uh, Lay it on me. How'd you how'd it hit you? Yeah, I hadn't seen it before. Um, as I said last week, I hadn't seen any of the films that we were going to be talking about, except for the American remake of The Dinner Game, which was remade as Dinner for Schmucks. That's the only Francis Weber film that I had seen that we're discussing. So looking at La Caja Folle for the first time, uh, I, and I, I knew about it from The Birdcage, which I also haven't seen. Which is amazing to me, how you missed that <laughs> just, one in your catalog. It's just one of those things. I, I think that the idea was uh, really solid. I liked the I liked the concept of this film. I can see how it was pulled from a a kind of a one act stage play, right? It feels Certainly, very much yeah. like it could have just very much worked in one room. Right, right. Great single location. Yeah, maybe a absolutely. half set to show the club. Yeah, right. I can totally see that. And and uh, I can see it playing well with these characters. I think that the transition to film, I think, worked. I think opening up the scope, allowing a few more locations and everything, worked really well for me. I, I feel I, it was an interesting film to watch for the first time today. Looking back on a film that I think is it's dancing in the way that comedies do with caricature, stereotype, and real people. And I feel like this film is kind of dancing across it. And sometimes I'm like, I feel like it's going a little too far, crossing into, you know, kind of some pretty broad stereotypes about about uh, very gay uh, drag queens. Mm -hmm. And characters that I were would say, you know, I can feel that there's something authentic with that character. I, I, but it, and so I was constantly kind of at, at odds with it, trying to go, is it, is it too much? Is it fine? Trying to gauge, is, is it a film that plays in today's, uh, in today's world? I think for the most part, I, I, I feel like I ended up falling on the side of the line that said, the characters are pretty broad, but a lot of characters in comedies are pretty broad. I feel like it's done in a way where I felt the characters were respected, the relationship was respected, and because of that, I felt like it actually falls on the side of they're doing a good job with it, even though I still feel sometimes like it's a little too far. Yeah, I, I'm actually I'm I'm really interested to hear that perspective. And I was worried about it because um, for me, after watching it for the first time again in, in many years um, and and I've, I've seen a lot of movies since then and I've seen a lot of really dumb, you know, broad stereotype movies since then. And I've laughed at a lot of extraordinarily dumb, broad stereotype movies. Um, and, and so I was worried about this one. But we we have to, I, I think, characterize the stereotypes into two different categories. One is the 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 sort of color characters right the characters that provide the texture or the landscape of the scene and i would put those in um you know the the cast of of la caja Folle, of the club right where you have the big you have those big scenes at the end of the birthday where they all barge in with a cake and they kiss and they do all this oh uh, uh, shrieks and shrieks and yeah. and and this film you know is seated firmly on shrieks and limp wrists i mean it's all those stereotypes but then you have the character right the the sort of humanity stereotypes which is you know alban who we we get as, as a person who is um clearly comfortable in his own skin mm -hmm. and yet deeply suffering from 
I, I would say, I, I don't know. I'm I'm just sort of thinking through like manic depression or 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 you know some sort of mental health issue that is that he's really struggling with, and that is impacting his relationships, how he relates to you know his partner, how he relates to his uh you know his partner's son, and you know how he relates to the world around him. And I I think that was uh, I I think I. I discovered something about the film that, to me, is very much more than uh, sort of just just a play on the shrieks and limp wrists. This is a this is much more of a story about a relationship, a relationship with some very quiet moments, some delightfully quiet and somber moments, and in fact, many more quiet moments than I remembered. I thought it was actually a much more of a thoughtful movie than I had given it credit for. Um, and, and so I, I hesitate and, and I, it actually frustrates me to read some of the, the critique of the film uh, that was of the period when it was released in 1978 that, that uh, really landed on the broad strokes comedy piece and missed the point. And, and I don't know if it's because we've now had, you know, 30 plus years to digest the cultural change that has happened since the film was made. Uh, but uh, I, I certainly found it more resonant and more relevant today, um, possibly than it was when it was made. Um, I, I don't know. I, what do you think of all that? Does that make any sense? That's what I largely found ended up making the film work for me was the fact that we had these quiet moments between these characters that actually gave me a sense that they they had a real relationship. I ended up, despite all of the insanity going on constantly between uh, Albin and uh, and his uh, his partner Renato, uh, as they uh, you know I, the beginning, it's just all you know shrieks and oh you hate me oh I'm you know uh, just all that stuff as as he and Renato is trying to get Albin to go on stage. It's very over the top. It's big. It gives us a lot of that, and that's that's the stuff that I think it works in the film, but it it also feels like wow, we're really pushing those limits because I mean Alvin is just over the top with the shrieks and and the the flamboyance and everything to the point where I'm like I, I feel like it's caricaturing to a point where I'm just almost not buying it. But that's when those relationship moments come in. And I find that there is a real heart, a real honesty in the story that makes me connect to it. And that's why I feel like in the end, the film ends up working. It's it's pushing those bounds um, in the realm of broad comedy because it is a comedy. And like I said earlier, comedy does that. That's what comedy is designed to do. It's to kind of really amp things up. And the the way that it ends up playing here, it it uh, it, it works for me because of those honest moments. Now, one of one of the big questions I think is, and and I think we're touching on it, is you know when we talk about how well the film holds up over time, is how well does the film represent the time that it was made? Right? I mean, is there some sort of cultural? Um, sort of understanding of the period of the late 70s of the late 70s and i would add the the place right saint tropez is a unique place in uh, on the mediterranean riviera right i mean and and so is there something that that we need to know about the time and place that this thing was made in order to get it and and i would make the case that maybe maybe there isn't but i do think the movie is better if you think through it that's interesting because I was I would my my initial reaction is I don't think so <laughs> you know I I think that this film can stand up on its own I I feel like the period knowing more about the period does help like just getting a better sense of this was the the seventies and I mean really you could take it to the early seventies when it yeah. started as a play in nineteen seventy three and. And just look at kind of the way that, especially French farce, because French farce didn't necessarily deal with these sorts of stories. It was always focused more on just sex and adultery. And that was really kind of the focus of French farce. Here we're taking it into this uh, this gay relationship with, and then just, you know, the, the you know, creating this illusion of what their life is for their children. 
Yeah, I, I feel like it does help a little bit. Now I'm kind of changing my, my thought. I feel like it does help <laughs> to really kind of think about the place or, or more of the time. I, I don't know as much about the place. I'll let you speak to that. But certainly the time, it's a different era. And I feel like, yeah. I mean, drag had been going on for you know decades and decades and decades before this, not just in film or theater, but it had been just a thing that had been around for quite a while. And I feel like by the time we get to this film, I, I think that there's a there's a world that you can reach when you do the broad comedy, and uh, but still keep it honest because I think it can help people understand it. And I think in the '70s that was probably a nice thing to see, you know. And I can't speak specifically to French audiences at the time, but I know it was popular, so obviously yeah. it was. The, there was the message was coming through. Well, I, I, a couple of points. Uh, number one, I think that um, that that understanding the time also puts us in a sense of headspace of our central characters. Right? There is a there's a reason that our central characters are who they are and are, are the age that they are. I mean, at the point we meet them in the film, they are the elder states people of you know this sort of bohemian uh, trans. Sure. Community, right? They own the club. They own the building. They are of a certain age that makes the cultural conflict that happens in the third act of this movie uh, interesting, right? That that shows that this is uh, this is a, a sort of a caste battle between the uh, leadership, political leadership of the country, and the cultural leadership of the country, and that matters. And I think understanding that, first of all, makes uh, makes the movie more interesting to me. Second, Saint-Tropez, I, I mean, it had been, um, you know, it was a place that that drew a lot of crazy, like, bohemian artists, right? The French New Wave, it was um, uh, the Yeah Yeah uh, uh, music revolution was sort of centered there. It came out of Spain and uh, Italy and kind of met in Saint-Tropez. It was, it was essentially... Uh, the sort of Beatles inspired pop uh, that that, you know, was was centered in sort of Saint-Tropez. Um, it was the first uh, city in, on the, the Mediterranean coast in France that was actually liberated in World War Two. Like it, it and as a result, it brought a lot of the international community, like the the ne'er-do-wells, those who who didn't uh, who, who had nothing else to do. Like they landed here. It was strangers and misfits and uh, and artists. And and uh, so when you think about what is happening there in the 1940s and 50s and then pick up this film in the 70s like these are those guys like they landed here somehow like where were they during the french occupation i i like i love that question because i feel like that backstory would be really interesting um and and i think that the movie set here is an echo of of that history and i i, I think it's I think it's really um, I, I think it, we're, we're better for understanding that the comedy uh, and I think French people at the time who were watching this film would have a better understanding of that, too, uh, that because they know what Saint-Tropez represents um, sure. to to France. And and it's weird when I was there because uh, I was living in La Ciotat, which is right down the Riviera, and we would take the train up and down the coast. But Saint-Tropez, there was no there's no train station. Uh, it was not connected. And so you'd have to, like, get off at another town and take a direct bus service into Saint-Tropez. But it was like just a massively popular uh, destination for Europe and, and American travelers. And a lot of it was because of the nude beaches. Um, they have this beach because Tahiti Beach and it, it was uh, popular for their clothes fights. Like their, their, their uh, you know, they, they just, the the police kept saying no you got to keep your clothes on and nobody wanted to keep their clothes on and and so <laughs> it it was a big deal and, and that, you know some of that if you saw uh, and god created woman that is kind of the the touchstone Bridget Bardot is was sort of the the cultural touchstone for what happened in Saint Tropez and of course Ben du Soleil for that Saint Tropez tan I know you're a big Ben du Soleil user <laughs> that's all I use and you got that Saint Tropez tan so it's I, I find it a fascinating place, and I think Le Cajoufol, the club, being centered and set in Saint-Tropez, there's a purpose for that, and I think it makes it for a, a better movie knowing it. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I well, know I don't know. Maybe that. only to you and me. I don't know. Well, I, I think it helps define, you know, I mean, I yeah. think it's like the Moulin Rouge, you know, I think there are certain 
iconic areas or, or you know, setting, setting a story to take place in, in uh, you know, down in New Orleans. Uh, yes. I think that gives a certain... Uh, or Chicago in 1925, right? Sure, I mean, there's yeah. a there are places and things that 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 matter there, and and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this particular series to put a little bookmark in it. I I wonder just how well because that element, the time and place element, is so important to Saint Tropez and and this story. I wonder how well we're able to translate that in in you know, the American remake of The Birdcage. Yeah, um, right. It, and it gets to that sort of next question, which is like how well, once you know all that stuff, how well does the heart transcend the superficial or the comedy of of the film? And, um, you know, I, I think this film is, is certainly made better for it. Can, can the Robin Williams-led cast do the same? I, I can't wait to see. Well, and, you know, just I was thinking about another thing as you were talking uh, because you brought up kind of the bohemians and the artists and everything down there. And I, I think that there is another point that I feel is a little more of its day, although I think there is certainly an element that still, um, I think, fits very much to today. But you see this very much in, um, uh, I'm forgetting her name, but the, the, the daughter's um, family. Andrea, the, the, the Chariers? Yeah, the Charrier. Yeah, Andrea's family feel very nervous about the arts. And I oh, couldn't yeah. help but feel like that was something that uh, was probably more of its day, but still fits, I think. I think that especially when you have really conservative people, the idea that your child or somebody that they're engaged to might be involved in something that, artistic can yeah. seem so shocking, you know, uh, that certainly is brought up here before she kind of fakes this whole thing that he is doing, not not, mm-hmm. not that his parents are in the arts or, or anything. So I think that's another element that's also worth, well, <laughs> worth thinking truly. about with it. And I think that that is a great point because it, you know when we when we look at how well the film characterizes the the generation gap, right? And I mean that's that's another thing that this film is is about. It's about like you know these kids have chosen a future that does not include the cultural belief system, the ideological belief system of their parents, and you see that in sort of humorously portrayed uh in in the the baldi side right when when he comes home and he's like you know i'm i'm getting married and and dad keeps saying oh the whore the whore you know using these <laughs> just sort of derogatory terms for uh, for this young woman but of course he's he's joking and they they wish the best for him ultimately they kind of get around it uh but we don't get that from uh you know uh, Simon Cherrier, he's he is uh, really stuck in in this ideological perspective that you know of of deep conservative values, and he's the head of the I can't, I can't now remember the the name of it, but the head of the, the, the union the, of moral the order. Union, <laughs> the union of moral order, which is so brilliant and and uh, timeless, truly timeless uh, name for a for a party. Um, and and so, like, we get to see those. Not to but, mention dealing with, uh, you know, problems yeah. in his own order because the president has been caught. With, was it a he young? Died. It was an, a minor. It was a, a black minor prostitute, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. And and the way that was written, too. I mean, you feel that sort of, uh, you know, I'm going to degrade um, Faber by saying it's that sort of Neil Simon vibe uh, where it, he just lays out these terms because he's you, you can kind of get the feeling that he's nervous to say it out loud. Right. Well, he was caught with a prostitute. He died in bed with a prostitute. Uh, oh, and she was a minor. Uh, and oh, yeah. And. She was black as he as he sinks into this chair and you realize that everything like those three words, uh, because he's an old conservative, you know, racist, <laughs> those three words destroy him. And I think he just it, it was written. It was written so well to capture the the battle between those those cultural gaps and the generation gap. Right. It, it hits all both of these axes. And I think it does it very well. And what a great turn at the end when uh, when Simon has to then don a drag outfit and go into disguise to escape the press. Yeah. What a great way to kind of uh, for our 
our family, our protagonists that we've been following to find a way to use their secret powers and save the day, basically. I thought yeah. that was uh, really clever and made for a really fun ending. So our, our protagonists on the Baldi side, Ugo uh, Tognazzi and um, Michel Serrault, um, what, I, I find them as a couple, um, it, it didn't take me long to, to really dive into their relationship and believe it. Did you struggle at all with, with who they were? I think I ended up buying it, but there was something keeping me a little distant from from Ugo Tonazzi as Renato. And when I listened yeah. to Eduard Molinaro, the director, talking about his issues in production, it made a little more sense to me. Ugo was not the original person from the the stage show, whereas Michelle was. Michelle uh, was originally on stage with Jean Poiret, who uh, had written the play. The two of them played these the the lead roles through the runs of the show. And then when the movie was made, they felt that they needed to the studio, not the not the director or anyone else, felt that they needed to give it a little bit more of a broad uh, casting to reach a broader audience. So they brought in Ugo, who is an Italian actor. And I think they're probably, I, as I recall, I believe there was Italian money behind some of this. Yeah. He was an Italian actor who had a rather robust career, very busy. And they brought him in to do it. And he essentially showed no interest in the process of making this film. It was just doing it largely for the paycheck. And and it was very frustrating for Edward, our director, because this actor was just so like, lethargic and disinterested and and several times said you know i'm going to leave and they had to keep threatening him if you leave then you have to pay back all the money we've given you you're not allowed to break your contract and so he only stuck with it because of that very difficult for the director to work with this guy and he was italian he refused to speak french for the film so he spoke he just spoke italian and kind of kind of fudged his lines in whatever way made sense for him to get through the day. And then then Edward and uh, Francis Weber had to do lip readings and try to figure out, okay, what is he saying? What does it look like we could change in the script to make him say in order to fit the character? And when I heard all of this, I was like, oh, this is probably why I had a harder time connecting with him as a character than I did with Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary. Holy cow. What, uh, uh, like, uh, now, I, I agree that it was, it, it was, I found it a little bit harder to connect with his character. But in in my watch of the movie, I wasn't bothered by it, and I felt like his standoffishness um, that that I was reading as sort of standoffishness actually um, ended up paying me back in sequences like um, when we first see Alban come out and uh, in the the more masculine suit, the classically uh -huh. tailored suit, and he takes a seat in that big chair and he tries to figure out what to do with his hands. And watching, you know, watching Ugo watch Michelle. I thought was was an incredibly powerful, like just a chills up the back of the neck kind of a moment. I think that was just a great scene. The scene on the park bench when uh, Alban leaves and uh, Renato has to go and and talk him back saying, you know, I miss your laughs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I'll have to get a uh, sell my plot so I can get one next to you when we die. So I'll never miss your laughs like that was an incredibly powerful little sequence. And it made me just. Uh, reflect on like that's why he's in the movie those scenes are why he's in the movie and then i read this i'm like oh god this is what i didn't need to know like i wanted it to be so sweet and perfect and now it's all ruined because of italian speaking lip reading french rewriting i, I bozo craziness well then on top of that this was another thing that i thought was interesting is michelle Serrault. he is not gay he came across um or he was just playing the part in the play and he was very comfortable in kind of the over the top way that they played it in the play the play didn't have as many of those kind of emotional moments that kind of connected us to a more honest relationship it was just more big broad story you know it was, it was very much mm -hmm. more the farce rather than the having these smaller moments 
And when uh, when he was working on the film, he was really concerned uh, about those moments where he had to actually emote and ha- have those smaller, more emotional beats with Ugo because he isn't gay and it was harder for him to play a serious gay character than it was to do the over-the-top broad gay character. And so that was another issue the director had, is trying to deal with Michelle, who was having a hard time with those smaller emotional moments. So I think what's interesting is the way that those moments can still convey the honesty and the power, uh, kind of the subterfuge under all of that, even despite the fact that Ugo was disinterested in being in the film and Michelle was having a hard time being an honest emotional character. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's really, it is a movie that doesn't deserve to work as well as it does. Yeah, it's kind of surprising. <laughs> On the other side of the family, right, we've already mentioned the Sherias, and we have uh, 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 Carmen uh, Scarpita and Luisa Maneri and Michelle uh, Galabru uh, as Louise, Andrea, and Simon, uh, and of course their their chauffeur, <laughs> Vanettino Vanettini, um, and uh, there are they are the other sort of nuclear family that is going across the French countryside to meet up to have this dinner, um, and and meet the meet the other parents. Um, just as we have this experience with uh, the Baldi family and their over the top you know, sort of playing on, on that side of the scale. We also have kind of over-the-top conservatism uh, in this in this family. We've already mentioned that with the, the black prostitute minor. Um, what do you think of his portrayal, though, dad in particular, as the over-the-top guy? Do you ever, did you ever stop and say, it, you know, it's too much, I don't get that joke, like it's, he's taking advantage of stereotypes? Well, this is this is why the film, I think, another reason that I found the film ended up working for me more than it didn't is because they were not just doing the big, broad stereotypes of the drag queens. They were also doing the stereotypes of the ultra-conservatives. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. so they're pretty much being equal opportunity and using the broad comedy and the caricatures with all the different varieties and allowing that to kind of work in what we're doing with the story. And to that end, I ended up finding that Michelle Galabru worked really well as the ultra-conservative dad who was just petrified of what he found that his daughter was marrying into. So I feel that it is pretty solid the way that they used it. And again, I think it's because the honest moments make the film work. I think the... the, um... You know, the ultimate payoff of the joke where we know that he's going to end up in drag. I mean, I don't know if you felt like seeing it for the first time. Like, this is kind of tired material when you when you take a step back and remove the people, right? Looking at it on the page, we've, we now have seen these kinds of stories sure. before. And I had seen images from the birdcage, so I knew that that was a plot So you already point. knew what it Yeah, all right. Uh, and, and so I, I think that ultimately... Um, you know, even with tired material, then you have to apply the 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 character rationale to it. And I think these performances and Michelle Galbraith in particular, um, what he is able to do to this stodgy, you know, old politician, not taking him too far. Like I think they could have really, you know, uh, made him wrestle with. St- broad comedy uh so much more than just climbing up and down a ladder right that that was about the extreme of the of the slapstickness that we get and and um uh, you know all the way up until the big joke at the end where he comes out in in drag and he's pounding on his chauffeur you know it's me can't you tell it's me and he's in a dress and it's it it's funny it's funny i think it's ultimately <laughs> i think it's good and so I think that's a that's a piece that frustrates me uh, when, you know, you read the critics who say it's just a dumb sex comedy. Um, I, I think they they're like latching onto those moments that are admittedly surface moments and they miss the 60 minutes that came before that was a dad, you know, trying to impart his his belief system on his daughter and doing it in a really clumsy, you know, ham fisted way. Je suis furieuse de vous connaître, hein? le papa de la vilaine qui m'a volé mon grand-fils. Oh. Albin, Albin. We've now watched a number of uh, uh, s- sort of uh, gender-crossing movies: Transamerica, Priscilla, yeah. 
uh, Queen of the Desert, fantastic. Uh, how does this one fit in the in the overall sort of landscape of these movies for you? Yeah, there's there's definitely a a line right in the world of film cinematic storytelling where you have men dressing up as women. There is the line where you have straight men dressing up as women for whatever reason to get out of a situation or whatever, like some like it hot, mm-hmm. which is an interesting film because it also kind of ends up blurring that line a little bit as we get toward the end of the film. But then you have other things that are purely straight guys putting on women's clothes just to hide. Um, the example that comes to mind immediately is, of course, Bosom Buddies, <laughs> which is a TV <laughs> show, but still... Tom Hanks, Peter Scolari, dressing up as women just so they can find a place to live. And you yeah. know, the only the only place available happens to be this this um, boarding house for women only. And uh, so, you know, I I that's one side of the spectrum. And then you have the other side that is definitely more the the trans Americas, where you're really dealing with kind of the the emotional complexities of going through. Uh, change mm-hmm. and that but then there's these ones that really deal with kind of the drag queen side and i i feel like there's it's i i can't think of many and I, I just might not be versed in the history of it but i can't think of many that really happened before this film la caja fall so it's entirely possible that this film was something that kind of set a good example for the way that film stories about uh, drag characters could be told in an honest way. Mm-hmm. Largely comedy still. Priscilla certainly goes that route too. And of course, the only other one I can think of, and I know there are more, but the only one I can think of right now is Tu Wong Julie Fu. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was thinking the same. And the, the only one that I can think of that we haven't done yet. Uh, and I don't know that it's <laughs> worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've never seen it, so I can't speak to it. Oh, all right. Uh, I, I think we, I think we saw the one we were supposed to talk about, which was Priscilla of of the two. Um, well, there's Kinky Boots. I oh, yeah, always yeah, yeah. Kinky about Boots. We've got. Yeah. We totally forgot about Kinky Boots. Yeah. So Tootsie. Anyway, that's another example yeah. of the guy dressing up like a woman because of some other specific some other reason, functional reason. Yeah. And then there's always I, Rocky Horror. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting that that uh, that nearly all of those, and especially the early ones, all deal uh, with it through the lens of comedy. And I think they they have to because this is such a culturally sort of hot button issue. It's hard for so many to wrap their heads around this perspective on uh, you know bending bending gender roles. Uh, And and this was it's interesting because, no, we don't have a a character who's going through a transition, but we do have culturally right in their sort of microculture, their family unit, um, her pronouns are she. And yeah. and it's something I've been neglecting through our whole conversation because I've been thinking in my head about Michelle and and Alban goes by she and Auntie and uh you know I've been a better mother than than her mother and or than his mother and those kinds of, of things and they they in the family refer to um to Alban as she yeah um, right it, it, and it, I found that interesting as I'm watching it like that is this is a an early representation for me of pronoun switching that I, you know, I was just not exposed to, but in fact, I was exposed to it because I watched it, but (laughs) not long after it came out uh, and had no memory of that, that we've been doing this for a long time. Well, that's what I think the film does. Interestingly is because it's doing all this again, it's coming across in a broad comedy. So you don't necessarily think about it, but it's there. Yeah. That's, and that's why it's important. And that's, I think why probably this film was popular and made uh, opened doors for films like Priscilla Queen of the Desert and uh, Tuong Fu and Kinky Boots and everything else mm-hmm. to uh, find homes and get made. Edouard Molinaro was a, a French writer and filmmaker and had, it's funny because listening to him speak, he really was never somebody who was interested in comedies, but that's largely what he's known for. 
Um, he actually started out in film and did a few films that were kind of detective kind of crime films. And he was known for those for quite a while because they were popular. Um, but then as he continued, he ended up making some comedies. And that's really, those ended up really clicking. And that's largely what he ended up spending a lot of time making after that. And I think the film that he made right before La Cage Fall was uh, not a comedy. And it was not a, I think it was a drama and it was not successful. And because of that, he just needed something to kind of get him, get his name back out there. And so he agreed to do La Caja Fall. And it, it wasn't something that was like, you know, something he'd been waiting to make forever or something. He just kind of grabbed it because he needed something that would be a hit. But it was a hit. It kind of pushed him into doing more comedy still. And, of course, because of that, he ended up doing directing the sequel to this a few years later. Not the third film, but the second one he did. Have you, obviously, you haven't seen the sequel. I haven't. Um, reading the, I'm really curious about it now because I read the synopsis. A spy plants a capsule of microfilm on Alban, and from then on, spies and the government agents pursue him. Alban and Renato travel to Italy to hide at Renato's mother's farm. At each point along the way, we see the straight world's reactions to Alban. Like, eh, fish, fish out of water story. Strange, strange spy story. Yeah. It could be fun. It could be fun. I wonder. I wonder what universe in what universe it's fun. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> like, I did struggled. you see it? Have you seen no, it? No, no, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't. I in fact, I didn't know there was a second one until I started reading about this movie for this yeah. week and third. I didn't know there was a third until about two minutes before the show. Like yeah. I, it's just totally news to me. What like it just feels like it. It there is no way to make this movie again the things that that they've done well this this is a movie that was was well spoken uh in its message and it and i think anything that follows it then leans it has to lean too heavily on the broad the broader the comedy the better because there's well, no I, think, I, I just don't think there's any other way to do it that's my I mean, hunch yeah I'm i curious i feel now. like you know vincent camby uh, the critic had a lot of negative things to say about mm. this film, about La Caja Fall. He just felt that it was just very much uh, pushing the stereotypes. For the second one, he said, the film is as harmless, reassuring, sentimental, and unsurprising as any primetime situation comedy that has gone on too long. So I feel like the, just I from Was that, that a compliment? I don't think so. No, I don't think no. it was meant to be a compliment. Okay, I, I think he's he's saying it's bad, but he's not saying it's bad in the way that the first one was bad. He's it sounds like it's just become a situation comedy, uh -huh. and it's not very funny. As for the third one, that's one that sounds really weird. Let me read the plot description. In order to inherit his Aunt Emma's large fortune, which includes a large chunk of Scotland, Alban must marry a woman <laughs> and father a child. And Renato goes along with the plan in an attempt to save their St. Uh, uh, Tropez Club, nightclub. Alban consults marriage broker Matrimonia and tries to act like a conservative heterosexual, but all attempts to conform fail, and he considers suicide. When all hope seems to be lost, Renato and Alban meet a suicidal young woman, Cindy, who decides that marrying Alban may be better than death. Wow. Uh, what? I don't even know what to make of that one. What I do find interesting, and it's a totally different director for this third one, what I do find interesting is that Michel Soro and Ugo Tognazzi as many issues as they had with the first one, they continued on into the second and third films. So it's just yeah, bananas. It is very peculiar. It just it says to me that Ugo just loved his money and Michelle probably enjoyed the more broad comedy and the less serious story. We should talk a little bit about Francis Weber since he we, is we the, the focus of our series here. Yeah. So yeah. by this point in his career, I believe that he had been uh, kind of involved in theater largely, but I think that uh, as of the early 60s or late 60s, excuse me, he had some of his uh, scripts that he had been writing had been made into films. And that was, I think, a, a good step for him because uh, by the time um, 1976 rolls around, he started directing films. And the first film he directed was The Toy, which was remade and uh, and just kind of continued on from there, directing all the way until 2008, 
actually. I, looking at the the way that he tells the stories, I feel like there is something that is probably going to be dated. Like if I go back and watch more of his films, like The Toy, Three Fugitives, mm-hmm. um, some of his earlier films that came out in the 80s, uh, I feel like I may end up finding that I have more issues with uh, with his uh, the way that he tells his stories. But what I do, I, I'm curious though, because like I said with this film, I feel like I have some issues here, but at the same time, I feel like he taps into the broad comedy in right in the right way where it ends up still working. So I'm wondering if those will, will still work too. Or maybe the French versions will work and it's just the American versions that might feel little data. Well, I, that is, is the central question for me is, you know, I, whatever you think of him as a, as a you know creator in in French, there is you know is are we able to take that and is he able to take that and and turn it into you know something that that resonates uh, with um, you know American audiences uh, uh, that is broader or that is I think more interesting than just the you know the superficial stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, there are so many so many movies that actually look interesting to me that are well above the six star rating on IMDb. Uh, I, you know, what what is Gerard Depardieu and Jean Reno doing in a in a movie together uh, <laughs> called Tetois? Shut up! Or I, I think the the American uh, uh, movie was Ruby and, and or the the American title Ruby and Quentin. There have been he has had eight of his films or films that he has been involved in, like this one. Yeah, adapted into American remakes. Um, there have been um, the tall blonde man with one black shoe was remade as the man with one red shoe. He's got Le Merdeux, which is Buddy Buddy, La Cage Fall, The Birdcage, Le Jou, Le, I don't know, you're, you're the French one. I'm probably butchering all this. Le Jouet. The toy, yeah. Le, Le Compère, Father's Day. The Calm uh, Dads, Le Chèvre, Le Dîner des Cons. Le Chèvre was le chèvre. Pure, remade as Pure Luck. Okay. Le Fugitif was <laughs> remade as Three Fugitives. Uh, three Fugitives, yeah. Yeah, and Le Dîner des Cons. Dinner for cons, dinner for mm-hmm. schmucks. Dinner for schmucks. Um, then he also wrote the script for My Father the Hero, which was a remake of the French film. And I'm not going to try saying that one. Mon Pere, c'est Errol. Errol. So I, I find it really interesting. And that's what I think is going to be interesting about looking at Weber and the films that he's involved in to really see what is it about the stories that he's telling that draws so many people to them and want to remake. And uh, controversial take. What is it that makes those who see those movies and think we should remake them not sit back and say, huh, I'll bet we could come up with that same story ourselves if we have a bottle of wine and about three hours. (laughs) Like, these are not the most earth-shattering stories in terms of, you know. Well, uh, but that's, and that's why it'll be an interesting series. Yeah, yeah. Like, is there something that really stands out? And honestly, I'm curious to go look at some of these other ones. Like Three Fugitives, I really enjoyed that film. But I was like, the fact that it was a remake, I'm like, what yeah. was it? What was so special about the original <laughs> that made them want to remake that one? Exactly. I don't know, but I'm really curious now. I don't know if I'll ever be able to find the original, but uh, I think, and I think it's one of those things. Comedy is an easy language, right? It transcends yeah. cultures very easily. And the fact that uh, Weber could tell these stories with some humanity I, in, in whatever language, I think speaks to the fact that, you know, it made people go, hey, you know what? That made a lot of money because it made a lot of French people laugh. Let's remake it in English, make a lot of Americans laugh. Anybody who hangs out in French France for any amount of time knows that we share the same sense of humor. <laughs> That's right. That, that is not true, what I just said. <laughs> uh, anything stand out to you in terms of uh, Armando Nanuzzi's uh, cinematography? Nanuzzi is definitely a pretty you know, big cinematographer. Definitely somebody who's been around for quite a while working with a, a good number of big Italian um, directors and on a lot of projects that... Um, I think are largely considered, you know, ones worth thinking about. 
what I think that he's bringing to the table here is a great sense of of naturalism in the house, in the houses, to give it something that feels just pretty authentic, like the way that the um, the Charrier house or Charrier house looked. I just think it just it had just kind of this darker tones to it that worked really well the way the shadows played. And I don't know, I just felt I felt like it worked really well in just kind of conveying the different worlds for me. Yeah, I think so. And I think I yeah, I think a lot of the way they use the the space to your point about, you know, sort of lighting and and um, and shadow in his place in the conservative house and then just the vibrance and the uh the this flamboyance of the the way the camera captures the tchotchkes and the ornamentation then and, and um uh, I, I think it was it was quite lovely but i i don't think any of that works without the incredible uh production design and set decoration of uh, uh Mario uh, Garbuglia and uh, Carlo Gervasi uh it, it's just I think it's just a great use and sense of space in these places and they just completely envelop the characters in in such a positive way well yeah and i mean certainly they were having a lot of fun with it with yeah. what they could do yeah right right a lot of fun i just have to go back to armando nanuzzi real quick just sure. to give just a point he was the cinematographer on stephen king's uh, infamous directorial debut of maximum overdrive oh that was one of your favorites well, what I didn't series. know about it was was interesting. He actually sued Stephen King for eighteen million in damages after a radio controlled lawnmower on the scene on the set, uh, which was supposed to be one of the machines that had come to life. It went out of control, hit a block of wood used as a supporting the camera, and it shot out wood splinters. And one of them hit in his eye, and he ended up losing his right eye from the oh accident. my goodness, yeah. I don't care for that story at all. I know. So we feel, I feel for like you, Armando. You I feel like I needed a trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> Andy. Pete. Ennio. Ennio. Morconi. I didn't know that he was involved in this. So right? it was a thrill to see his name pop up. I'm like, oh, good. More Morricone music. I love it. And I didn't get a sense of the Old West. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, he he certainly is versatile. He allows some other other vibes to come from the music. It works um, quite nicely. Okay, we've already talked about the sequels and remakes, and it's just well, we nonsense. talked about some of them. We talked about the sequels. Oh God, there are more. Yes, there. In 1983, a few years later, there was a Broadway musical made. Oh yeah, um, which was also very successful. And then there was, uh, of course, the Birdcage, which we'll be talking about. There was also another version of it, and I need to find it. That was made in was it 2012, 2011? Oh, it was a TV thing. Is that what we're talking? It was about? no, it was just a remake. Um, another French remake by Dominique Thiel. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, it was rated pretty poorly. Yes, it was a TV movie. You are correct. Okay. Yeah. In France. And, uh, yes, I believe it was. So, uh, poorly rated. I don't know if there, if that, if there's much worth talking about there. And, um, but also there was a, uh, a TV series that was actually talked about, uh, happening that would be kind of follow the life of a gay couple. And it uh, it was going to be called Adam and Eve, of course, Y V E S for Eve. Yeah. But it um, they couldn't figure out how to make it last as a show, and it never happened. So that was that. Well, still popular property. Possibly, we're better. Well, I don't know how popular because I haven't heard you do the awards yet. It was a pretty popular award season. I mean, relatively for 1978, five wins, five other nominations at the. Oscars, it really caught people's eye. We had Molinero nominated for Best Director. He, of course, lost to Robert Benton for Kramer versus Kramer, which we've talked about on the show. Great film. Um, also lost adapted screenplay to Kramer versus Kramer. And costume design lost to All That Jazz, which, you know, I mean, it's arguable that All That Jazz should have won all of the awards. Yeah. So at the Golden Globes, it did win Best Foreign Language Film. And at the Cesar Awards, which are the French Oscars, uh, Michel Serrault did win Best Actor. And how to do how to do at the box office? 
Well, Molinero's film had a budget of 1.1 million or 4.3 million in today's dollars. The movie opened in France October 25th, 1978, and was a huge success, becoming the second highest grossing film of that year. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out what beat it at the box office. But here in the States, reports show that it only grossed 18.7K, a lot less. What? But what they do say is that as of 2014, it was still ranked the 10th highest grossing foreign language film in the U.S. So I can't help but feel like something is awry with some of these numbers and uh, statistics. But it really was a popular film. All told, it did gross $20.4 million at the global box office, which is about $80.3 million in today's dollars, and gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $783,000. Definitely enough of a success to get audiences to those sequels, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the curse of riches, if there ever was one. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, it, what a fun way to open our series and uh, a, a fun way to kind of revisit some of these flamboyant characters that, um, you know, I think they end up using very well. Um, and I'm I'm loving kind of that we're about to unveil some of Francis Weber's uh, work, starting with this one. I dearly hope this isn't the high point. I'm curious. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how the rest of these play out. And I'm really curious to see how the American spins on these stories work. So, Right. Uh, all right. Let's let's do it. Let's take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up against ours. First up, La Caja Fall or Autumn Sonata. I think I'm La Caja Fall. If only for the more jubilant spirits. That's jubilance. I'll take jubilance. Lakaja Fall or Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing for me. Yeah, Do the Right Thing. Lakaja Fall or Targets. From our 1968 crime films. I'm going to say Targets. Uh, okay. Yeah, I really I, I'll say that. Targets. That was. Mm. Lakaja Fall or The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I'll say Diving Bell. Yeah. Oh. I know, I know. You love that one. Oh, my God. That's rough. <laughs> Lakasha Faller being John Malkovich. I got to go Malkovich. Yep. Malkovich. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Or The Thomas Crown Affair. Um, 1968. I need to say Kajafal. another of our movies in the remake series. Yep. <sighs> Boy, I don't know. I'm a fan of the Thomas Crown Affair 68 version. I'm going to go with that one. Uh, you can have it. You know what? I don't even want to fight about it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. The Kaja Faller, High Noon, little Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly action. I think High Noon. I'm going to say High Noon also. The Kaja Faller in Darkness from our recent uh, Agnieszka Holland series. (laughs) Boy. (laughs) It's tough. Again, going back to the jubilant spirits, I will say the Kaja Fall. Yeah, the jubilant spirit. Okay. All right. (laughs) I know. The Kaja Faller creep show. Well, You're I'm say a big Creep, creep show. show fan. Yeah. I think I'm going to say La Caja Fall. Okay. Well, let's take it to the mats then. All right. All right. Here we go. You ready? <laughs> One, two, two three. three. Papers. Scissors. All right. Creep show takes it. It's okay. It's all right. Well, that leaves La Caja Fall. It's about 224 on our chart. 224 out of 451, which puts it at about a 50%, pretty close to the middle. Uh, it performed better on mine, uh, marginally better on mine. How did it do on yours? Boy, it performed a lot worse on mine. It just what? kept coming up against films. I'm what? like, what is that doing here? I have to pick it. And I was really surprised that it was such a battle for this one. It ended up in at uh, 34.22 out of 43.37 or 21%. Holy smokes, Andy. Yeah, I know. That is a disconnect. No, for me, it Well, that it, tells it, me I need to do some re-ranking. <laughs> yes. Yeah, first and foremost. For me, it hit 345 out of 1446, eight, somewhere in there. And uh, that puts it at a 76%. And if I'm to go by the algorithm or over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this is supposed to be a four star film over there. And I'll tell you, I feel really good about that. I think my ranking ended up at just about the right place. And I think uh, for me, it's a four star movie. For me, it's not quite there. 
I feel that it's it's on its way there, but I just I, I enjoyed it. I think that the story it's works on its way there. You think they need to keep workshopping it? The, the, I think they do. I think they well, they clearly I didn't get the spies. I didn't get the there were no know, spo- the fake marriages. That's really what I needed. Now, I, I ended up at a three out of five, three and a heart. So we'll average it out at three and a half. Three and a half. Our chart, yeah. All right. Well, I feel like we we've, we've been talking about what we're doing next week uh, pretty much the whole show. <laughs> so pretty true where, where do we go from here <laughs> well it will be interesting to jump to this next one it is the birdcage directed by mike nickel and uh, you know you've seen it i haven't i feel like i'm one of the few people who has not so i'm really curious to uh, check it out robin williams gene hackman nathan lane diane wiest uh and hank azaria so i'm curious it, it, i hank azaria I, you know, I don't know. My, uh, he, he, the character Jacob in this movie is, is the character named Agador in the birdcage. And this, this is was the, this the, the maid slash butler. The butler. Yeah. We didn't talk yeah. about Jacob at all in this, but the, the whole gimmick about how Jacob can't wear shoes, he keeps tripping. Um, yeah. Well, Hank Azaria is extraordinary in terms of. I will say celebrating stereotypes. I can't wait to hear what you think of, <laughs> of of this. I mean, this he's turned up to. Jacob turned up to eleven. It's uh, it's good or not? I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Is it good? I guess we'll find out next week when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Yeah, they sometimes do. If you sometimes. catalog uh, Letterboxd as Amazon, then yes, <laughs> Amazon giveth. Uh, we're, we're still we're still dipping our toes into our new game, which is very exciting. Reading letterbox reviews in a different language after Google Translate has had its way with them. So... Google Translate is the one that deeply disrespects the author's original intent. We're the ones who only speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Technically, just you this time. I'm sticking with the... Oh, you're doing an Amazon? I'm doing Amazon. All right, all right. Uh, Well, I have definitely... uh, I'm going to go first. Oh, okay. I'm going to do it. uh, Because we've got a... uh, This is a Spanish review from Josep. And he gives it two and a half stars, so lower than both of us. And uh, and he says, I never thought that a film in which a father is disappointed that his son is straight would leave me so cold I don't know French. Hmm. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds very disappointed. It sounds like really, yeah, really let down by this it, one. It does sound let down. And I'm going to, I want to work that into my vernacular. Like this podcast has made me so cold that I, well, I don't even know how I'm going to end that. Don't see, speak French. That I don't speak French. Maybe that's it. it. Yeah, yeah, Maybe that's just, it. Yeah. yeah. All right. What'd you do? What do you, what do you have? What do you have to live I have a tonight? one star over okay. on Amazon by Phyllis G who has this simple review, which is drastically different from every other review because apparently most people on Amazon are furious that it is dubbed. Oh, the, they the get Amazon so mad that other languages dubbed, exist. And I tell you, everyone is upset about that, except for Phyllis, who apparently got a different version. Phyllis said, oh dear, it's in Italian. <laughs> One star. She got the Italian. She's the one who got the Italian version. Maybe Amazon saw that and said, we better dub this quick. (laughs) And then everybody else has complained about that. The only uh, gnat sound on the entire movie is Ugo. Mm, (laughs) Ugo. Mm -mm. (sighs) Thanks, Amabox. I've been podcasting since 2006. 
In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.